Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and today is Guy Talk Day to get things started. And the guys have been uh, consisting on a diet today of locusts and wild honey, so they are ready to take your questions. All you have to do is send them over. Text them, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. The power panel today is Dr. Peter Kapsner, Pastor Tom Parrish, and Jeff Verdorn with special guest, and I'm excited to welcome to the studio uh, Jeff's wife, Julie. So um, we're not going to put her on because it's guy <laughs> talk, nice and, and she's just doing the big hand underneath the chin, like no, yeah, no, 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 don't no, put no, me no, on. No. So anyway, nice to have you here, Julie. So um, because a lot of women listen to guy talk, apparently, according to rumors that I've heard, there are rumors out there. So are there you, really? Yes, there are. <laughs> yes, I've heard that too. Yes. You know, the rumors, you hear rumors all the time. Yes, yes, you do. <laughs> so let me know the questions, 877-933-2484. I've already got a great question to get things started with, and I sent it to you guys in advance, so you guys should have great answers. Peter, I, I think you got it as well, didn't, didn't you? I did. I got ahead of time. That was a very unusual event for Guy Talk, Bill, that we have any idea what's coming beforehand. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I shouldn't actually be doing this. But the question is, comes out of Exodus. Jim sent this. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. There's this wonderful passage where the Lord describes himself. When it says, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, I would love to know what are the differences between those words and what do they mean? Well, it's a good thing you sent this out because one of the things that I personally like to do if someone asks a question like that is to look up these individual words in the original language in the Hebrew. Mm -hmm. And what you find is it's three different words. And I know a couple of you guys are going to comment on maybe some of the nuances a little bit that you found in these. But generally speaking, they all can be translated as sin and actually are in the English version of the Old Testament are translated as sin in the in, in the English. So I actually believe this is one of these cases where God God will often repeat things for emphasis. And I compare it to the one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul and all of your mind. I actually believe all three of those are the same thing too. He's basically saying with with your decision making part of you which we sometimes describe it as our heart, although we don't really think and feel with our with the organ that pumps our blood. Uh, but it's our soul. That is where our mind, our will, and emotion, and our memory reside. So he's really saying, love the Lord your God with all of your soul, with all of your soul, and with all of your soul. And I think this is happening here, too. I think all three of these words are basically sin. Mm. They are, and they have a strong meaning to them. When you begin, though, to look at their context or how the translators translate them, they usually use a different word depending upon the context of what's going on. And so what I saw there is that wickedness, um, I take that beyond the word evil. Evil is bad enough, but wickedness is when you target somebody. 
And as Hitler targeted the Jews, or as you may target a family member because you don't like them. And so you find ways to do wicked things to them and hurt them. Rebellion is basically saying, you're not God. I'm God. I want to be in charge. I'm going to have the final say. And sin is basically uh, spending life on yourself. It is ignoring what the Lord has called us to do, and it is living for yourself and what's good for you. So all of those are sin. All of those are evil. All of those are wrong. uh, But there are subtleties to them. Yeah, I mean, if there are any distinctive nuances among those different words, and and I think there probably are, uh, even though, as Jeff said, that they kind of all belong in the same same vat of falling short, but sin specifically means um, falling short. And, and so it can even be related to the attempt to do something right and good, but then those, even those righteous efforts are as filthy rags, the Bible says, because we can't in our own human effort and human power attain the kind of glory that God has called us to. We live in the shadows of a sinful world now, so all have sinned or all are falling short of the intentionality of God. And, and if iniquity has a slight difference to that, um, it would be more about the idea of an intentional twisting. You're, you're actually taking something of God's law and you're twisting it for your own purposes. You are. It's a little bit more of a willful rebellion, the idea of just the general nature in which we all fall short. But, uh, but God's compassion and grace covers all of those things is the point. So there might be some different nuances that are interesting to look into, but all of them are functioning in such a way that um, we're just not in, in the state that we're meant to live in, which is why we needed the Savior. You know, one of the other things I noticed in the three definitions is all of them had a component of punishment mm-hmm. associated with them. And I thought that was really interesting as well. Yeah, it is. And when you look at these words and uh, the impact they have, and you brought up a good point, Peter, you know, all of our good deeds are like filthy rags. That's something you rarely are going to hear even in the church anymore. You're rarely going to hear it in teaching because it doesn't fit with our cultural understanding of being good and kind and tolerant and loving. And yet the Word of God is pretty harsh on some of those things. And I think what we've done is we've kind of neutralized a lot of the word because we've ignored uh, those words. So uh, they all mean sin. But when I think of the sin in my life, I know there are different nuances because there are times in my life before I knew Jesus, I was wicked. I wanted to hurt people. I wanted to do something. And uh, I was listening to uh, the Walker brothers uh, the other day singing, make it easy on yourself. And he's, he's breaking up with this girl. She's breaking up with him. And the other guy's really right. You just go ahead and make it easy on yourself and go to him. And I thought, you know, I don't know of any guy that would do that. Most guys would behave wickedly if their girlfriend broke up with them and hope that something bad would happen. That's human nature. That's just who we are, unfortunately. You know, really quick, you said wicked before you were saved. I, we need to point out at this point that even though we've been declared holy, we are saints in God's eyes, holy and blameless, we still continue to sin. But the punishment of the sin for the believer has been turned away from us, right? right? We have been washed. We have been cleansed as believers. So even though we fall short as Christians, saints who sin, uh, God's wrath, his punishment, this idea of punishment associated with sin has been taken care of for the believers. Yes. So. Yeah. And one of the questions that I get often, and it's kind of an interesting, it makes for an interesting conversation, is... Uh, this is for my students now. They'll say, so all sin is sin, right, Capster? I mean, it's all sort of the same. And and I guess on one level, uh, it is all the same in the sense that it all falls short of God's intention for us. But I think there's a different angle we can play on this in, in the sense that um, sin in, in sort of the biblical understanding is something that's going to continue to play itself out in the future. And so in that sense, not all sin is sin, meaning that the effects of an iniquity or the effects of a rebellion of some sort 
uh, are going to be measured differently in how they play themselves out in society or how they play themselves out in my personal life or how they play themselves out in relationships. And so, for example, when maybe my third, my three or four or five year old, when they, when my kids are younger, if they stole a cookie from the cookie jar and then lied about it, that clearly is falling short. And it has a rippling impact in my relationship with my son or my daughter that might have done that in which it would cause some sort of distrust between us. And there would be maybe some suspicion in the air for a little while. But at the end of the day, it's pretty easily rectified between us. It doesn't take much more than some apologies and then some fun together and sort of the the incident is, is mostly forgotten. But you compare that to some more just really egregious acts that just bring such harm to one another, um, violence, assaults, uh, some of the things that we could probably imagine. And those kinds of things ripple out then uh, for many years, sometimes for a lifetime. Sometimes they even become generational in a lot of ways. So when the Bible talks about even generational sin, it just keeps perpetrating into the future. So I think it's important to make a distinction between the idea that we all have what's called a disposition of sin that needs cleansing, but at the same time, not all sin is sin, at least not how it's weighed in the biblical text. There really are greater and lesser impacts according to different sin. You know, I learned the reality of this early in my ministry. Uh, I was counseling. And in the morning, I had a couple come in. And uh, when the wife stepped out of the room, because I w- let the husband and wife talk separately, the husband admitted he'd been having an affair, but he didn't know how to tell his wife. And I was angry. I must admit, how could you do this? They'd only been married like five years. I thought that's the worst thing I've ever heard. Until 4 o'clock that afternoon when I had a a young woman come in who was contemplating getting married, but she didn't know she should because when she was seven years old, she was raped by a stranger. And she's carried the burden of that all of her life. And she said, I don't know if I'll be a good wife or if I can even handle the honeymoon. And so you look at the, and with exactly what you're saying, Peter, the consequences of our behavior, some of them go much deeper than others and have a lifetime impact. And that's where we need the healing power of Jesus. And that's where the church needs to step in and help people understand that, yes, yeah, sin is sin. And it's all rebellion against God. But there are some sins that's going to take a lot longer to work with people and help them deal with that. All right. Here's another question. Gentlemen, Jesus was all God and all man. Because he is man, Jesus had emotions of man, like anger, turned tables, uh, tables turned at the temple, sadness, Jesus wept. Did Jesus ever experience fear as man does? Well, the Bible says that he was like us in virtually every way. So there must have been something along the way to really caught him off guard or he experienced fear because he really could identify with us, but he didn't let the emotion drive who he was going to be or who he was going to follow. And I think that's the biggest thing for all of us. We're all very capable. I mean, somebody once asked me, do you think Jesus ever lusted after the opposite sex. Well, I think that the attraction Should we go came... to break? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, are think... you going to answer that? Oh, yes, I am. The, the attraction was there just Thank like it's there. Thank you for listening to guys. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Since this is my last show, let me finish this. The attraction was there, but he didn't act on it like too many of us do. He didn't follow through on it, but there's still the initial reaction that wow, she's a a really nice-looking lady, but he didn't push that, as we often do. That's when it becomes sin. And his anger in the temple, people say, well, Jesus couldn't be angry. He never sinned. Well, you can be angry without sinning. And Paul talks about that, so Jesus could too. He took every thought captive, just as Paul describes that we should, right? Only he did it perfectly. So he was tempted in every way, Scripture says, yet was without sin. Um, So, you know, James describes it as when sin comes, 
that this attraction pierces our desire, which then leads to sin. So he was tempted. He was, you know, sure. pierced. He had those same piercings that we did, but he never acted on them, like you said, Tom. But did he fear is the question? I go back to that he was made like his brothers in every way. You mentioned that verse. And so he was a man, and he would experience the same kind of temptations and emotions, pains and fears. You know, did, did Jesus, I'm sure, when he was a kid, had something go bump underneath his bed, right, So and was scared, you know. And yeah. he probably had that fear. D- did he ever uh, uh, have a fearful situation in which he expressed fear? Yeah, well, probably. But one of the fears that he didn't have was a spiritual kind of fear, like, oh, you know, is God real? He never had that doubt, you know, am I really going to go to heaven? He understood he was the man from heaven, and he's the only one that has come from God. He was angry, but he wasn't angry like we are angry, right? right? He had a righteous, you know, that righteous anger, that mm-hmm. just anger. Um, so um, I would say that he did share these emotions with with humanity. Well, you look at the Garden of Gethsemane three times, you know, Father, you know, is this your will? You know, is there any other way? And it said he sweat blood. And I don't take that as a metaphor. I believe he really sweat blood, which means the intensity of what he was up against was so human. It was huge. Stress. All right, we'll take a break. We'll come back. Lots more guy talk or guys who talk. Send the questions over, 877 We want to connect with you on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. We're creating encouraging posts every day to help you focus on the important things as you spend time on social media. From graphics that feature Bible verses and quotes from our hosts and show guests, to articles about topics you are interested in, to videos from our hosts. Search Faith Radio on social media sites to connect with us today. got to wait. Got to wait for the horn. Yeah. We agree. It's good. It is so good. Welcome to Guy Talk, where guys who talk, the guys talking today are Pastor Tom Paris, Jeff Ferdorn, and Dr. Peter Kapsner. And there's always Larry, who's available if we need if we need him. <laughs> I like him. It. Yeah. Yeah. So um, here's a question. Uh, hey, here's a mama of two adopted teens. What are some biblical truths you can speak into this life of a blending family? Really struggling to teach them the important things and have them stick. I'm Parrish, I'll let you go first. Well, in, in a blended family like that, you know, children and parents, uh, if you look at it from the Lord's point of view, it is the behavior that makes you the parent or the child. It is not simply the biological. There's a lot of biological out there, but there are a lot of biological fathers and mothers that aren't showing up when they should do do that. Real parenting is in the process of saying, no matter what happens, I'm going to be here for you. No matter what happens, I'm going to take care of you and guide you. You have been created for a purpose, and I want to help you find that purpose. Boy, if parents would do that and talk to their kids that way, what a difference that would make. Because most kids 
don't see that. They don't see they have a particular identity. They don't believe they're created in the image of God, and they don't believe that their parents believe in them. And we need to let them parents do that, and kids need to hear it. That's exactly where I would go with this. I think the the words mother and father, parenting, love, for that matter, are much more verbs than they are nouns. Mm-hmm. They are much more your actions. So I don't know that it really matters much if your child is a natural child or adopted child. You're to mother them, father them, love them, bring them up in training and instruction of the Lord, as Ephesians says. And uh, I think you treat them the same way. And if you can honestly say you are my child, even though they don't share your DNA, uh, then you're probably being a pretty good mother and father. Yeah, if I'm looking at some biblical passages, that might be helpful from time to time. I think something from Romans 8 and then verses 14 through 17 can be helpful where it talks about the move from slavery to freedom and from um, being far away to to adoption to sonship, and I would add daughtership to that. Uh, It it just talks about in there that we are children, we are all children, and we are heirs and co-heirs of God uh, in Christ. And so it levels the playing field a little bit, meaning that even a mother and a father are the same in terms of their status in God's kingdom as co-heirs of that which is to come. Now, mothers and fathers have a responsibility of shepherding, and they have a responsibility of looking mm-hmm. after and, and training up their children. That All of that is true, but I think for the adopted child, and, and I have a couple of friends that have uh, adopted children, there is that very understandable sense of to whom do I belong that the child is going to ask. And they might be in, entirely grateful for the parents that are in their home, but there, also, there, there does seem to be sort of that very understandable longing to say, but who birthed me? Like, where, where's my mother? And, and can I ever meet my biological father? And um, I, I kind of want to know where I come from is how they, they might think of that. And, and that's independent of how well parents have adopted them. And so I think um, to answer the biological question, but to answer it from the standpoint of, but we're all sharing as sons and daughters in God's kingdom, parents and children alike, I think just helps then um, maybe bridge that gap of belonging that adopted children can understandably feel. You know, that's a great parallel that we have been adopted into God's family, and he is mm-hmm. no less our heavenly father because we're adopted in. Same, too, with an earthly adoption. It's interesting. You saw a program where they were talking about kids that were looking for their birthing parents. Who who was my real mom and dad? And they were adopted. Surprisingly, the program's conclusion was... It's not always like you think it's going to be. And about two-thirds out of the time, they were disappointed they found them because it changed their whole attitude toward who they, they were and weren't even sure they wanted to be biologically descendant from them because you're usually dealing with a very difficult situation, usually very young. We don't know the full implications. And I've actually helped people find their birth parents. I've done, gone down that process with DNA and the cotton swabs mm-hmm. in the mouth. But I've been there, too, and I've seen how disappointed some of them can be. Now, some are thrilled. I don't want to say that not, and sometimes it's great, but too often it's not what they thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk, and the questions uh, will be fielded. Uh, all you have to do is text them over, 877-933-2484. You can remain anonymous if you like. Uh, I like this comment, speaking of Guy Talk. I like the Guy Talk title and program, but I've noticed how people and radio programs consistently avoid the word man and instead say guy or male, even referring to women and males or women and guys. Just an observation. 
And if I may jump in quickly. Please do. I think the word guys is just a very uh, collegial sort of expression. Hey, a bunch of guys are going ahead to the baseball game tonight. It's just, it's... It's like a partnership. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we grew up, you know, we still, locker room is mainly our guys, and the girls have their locker rooms. And I grew up a guy. So there's a camaraderie there that's hard to dismiss even when you get older, especially for men. And it just seems to fit. But I don't like to, you know, instead of the term guys, I would use the term handsome. I think handsome. See, I, I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> handsome guy You're talk. Man. Handsome yeah, guy talk. Yeah. Come on, Peter, jump in here. Yeah, thankfully we're going to break quickly. Uh, <laughs> I don't, yeah, man but, talk just doesn't roll off the well, kind of like but, guy talk. But, but I was I asking like, uh, Jeff, your wife Julie, uh, when you talk about going out to lunch, do you say I'm going out with my girlfriends? Well, yeah, she said, yeah, that's how I, I would say it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there something uh, di- diminishing about calling adult women girls? We've got you shaking your head. No, Jeff. We're yeah, on radio. No. Yeah, so, well, I thought you were continuing, and I was confirming what you were saying. Yes, absolutely. And I'm just watching the whole thing. You know? It's great. Yeah. These are my best girlfriends. These are my best guy friends. It's uh, it's uh, it's more familiar. It's a more familiar term yeah. than male, female, man, woman. So, and they actually mean if, the same thing, by the way. Yeah, uh, they do. And and I wonder if there's uh, a sense in which that the the person writing in is sort of subtly commenting on the gender blurring that's going on or maybe possibly the diminishment of of maleness that's happened. And and I think there's a lot of conversations to be had about that. I'm not sure that us calling this guy talk is representative of those things. I think it's an entirely separate thing. I think you guys are hitting on it well. I mean, I've I've never felt even remotely diminished or blurred by calling something guy talk uh, in the least. I think it, it speaks for itself in terms of um, what we've been trying to foster as a as a fun, interesting, collegial place to be uh, among peers, and but there certainly is a conversation to be had about what's happened to men in our country and how men are not in the household and men have been diminished. There's certainly a conversation about blurring. I'm just not sure this is the, quite the right uh, framework for that part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. The follow up text was, "Thanks, I agree, but have you heard the avoidance in society?" Yeah, for sure. Oh, sure. So that's definitely that's what we're sure. talking about. For sure. About. Yeah. yeah. Now, I have been scolded kind of the other way where I've called a group of people, men and women, hey, guys, you know, where do we all want to go for lunch? Yeah. And some women have scolded me for referring to them as, quote, unquote, guys. So hmm. I think that's a little different issue. But Well, you know, for, for us men, we say, oh, I love getting together with a group of guys on Tuesday morning and we have Bible study. And that's just the way we talk. Yeah. yeah. I think that we can clear this up. Instead of calling it guy talk, we should call it the guy talk because the definite article tells us the guy is really Jesus that we're talking about. <laughs> That's, there Who you can go. argue with that? I like that. Well, I'll consider that, Tom Ferris. <laughs> <laughs> okay, get, it's been considered and that's gone. Yeah. My lawyers, Mas- and I, my lawyers and I will get back to you in two weeks. Masculine guys who talk about the guy. How about that? Yeah, that's the only person we want to talk about is the, the guy. The guy. Yep. Yeah. So, but I also say guys who talk because, you know, we're a group of guys that are men, 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 they get together and talk. So, all right. <laughs> that brought the conversation to a grinding halt. Um, <laughs> it did. So a good thing that we're at break time because it's, uh, it's time for a break. So we're going to come back in just a few minutes with more of your questions. So send them over 877-933-2484. we got a bunch of great questions. Uh, we're going to discuss them during the break, and then we'll get right to them when we come back. There's going to be lots of good stuff coming up. Do not budge. We'll be right back.
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me today. If you just climbed into your car, it is that time of the week where we have uh, guy talk or men talk or guys who talk, whatever it is. Let me know what your questions are, 877-933-2484. I love this question that just came in. Uh, good afternoon, talking guys. That's how it started. <laughs> my, name is, my name is Courage, and I need some clarity on this. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, First John 2.15. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, John 3.16. How do you compare these two verses? Well, the, the Greek word in both instances, and I look there as a core, the Greek word cosmos. But cosmos has a much bigger meaning uh, in Greek than it does in English. In John 3.16, cosmos really refers to sinful people. It is really not just the universe in terms of the stars and the moon. It's sinful people that Jesus came for. When you're talking over here in 1 John, you're talking about the standards of the these sinful people, the standards of this world, which are loving other things, not paying attention to one another, not forgiving one another. So it's the context that makes all the difference. Even though I may use the same word, they have two distinctly different meanings in terms of what's being talked about. Yeah, the first one is the things in this world, and John 3.16, are the people of yeah. this world. And God definitely loves all the people of this world. In fact, he demonstrated that love for the people of the world in this, that while we were all yet sinners— Christ came and died for us. He didn't drive, die for the things of this world. He died for the people of the world. Yeah, well said. I got nothing, nothing further to add. You got nothing? I nothing, was, I was hoping there'd be that's more not, from come, Gaffner. Oh, come on, Peter, we always expect you to have more. <laughs> no, that's you guys covered that so beautifully. I've, I've got nothing. Thanks. Thank you. All right. John 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do Nothing. All right, then go on to verse 6. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Well, let's, let's start with the branches that are not connected to the vine, because I think this is easier. Branches that are... Jesus is the true vine. We are the branches. If you are a branch connected to the vine... I think the imagery here, the symbolism here, is that you are saved. You are in Christ. You're united with him. You have salvation. You're born again. If you are a branch that is not connected to the vine, you are gathered up and burned. And I think that's a clear picture of the hellfire. Now we go back and it says that the father is the gardener. And he says this in the English. And virtually every English Bible translates this word the same way. He says he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, time out. Stop. For 14 chapters, John had been telling us that if you believe, you will have eternal life. And now all of a sudden it's saying that, but you have to bear fruit, otherwise he's going to cut you off. It's like, no way. What's going on here? Well, this is one of these cases, and there's not a ton of these in the New Testament, where a little Greek understanding is so helpful the Greek word for cuts off that is translated as cuts off is the word ario. And it literally means to lift up, 
That is its primary understanding. How it got to cuts off, I don't know the history of that, but I would argue that a much better translation of this would be to lift up. So let me read that again. He lifts up every branch in me that bears no fruit. He wants us to be fruitful. So he's going to lift us up. The next verse is he's going to prune us and trim us and take away some of the greenery that we might bear fruit because that's his will for our lives as believers. But he'll never separate a branch from the true vine. Uh, That would mean that you could lose your salvation, and I just don't think that is what the New Testament declares. So that's how I would describe that. Peter, jump in. (laughs) Hey, I've got nothing. (laughs) I I mean, I I think, Jeff, you, again, covered it well. And and I think maybe rather than get more into the passage, and we could, I just I appreciate um, if, if somebody's listening and doesn't understand even what you mean by getting into the Greek, I think it's, the Bible is really difficult to parse out, and and I just want to always encourage people and and empathize or emph- emphasize that because when you read the Bible in English, we get so many questions on guys talk that are related to confusion, like loving the world or not loving the world, and and so you and Parrish in the last two questions have just used some very simple online Greek tools that I highly recommend yeah. for anybody to have open alongside of them when they read the scripture, because it just brings out some of the different subtleties. Greek is very different than English, and and to translate things from Greek to English is a very, very tricky process, but it's so necessary because otherwise you you might end up having thoughts about God's kingdom, um, about who God is, about one another, that just isn't consistent at all, and it gets really confusing because we read that passage from John 15, and it really just almost sounds like God is sort of hunting around on the vine and trying to find some potentially withering branches, and then he takes the big shears and lops that thing off, and he can't wait to burn it all. You know, And, and people interpret passages that way, but I think there's something very different going on. Uh, I would go so far as to suggest um, that— uh, any one person has um, regular branches in their own life that need to get pruned off so the healthy ones can continue to grow and bear fruit. I don't, I don't think this is a passage about um, cutting off certain people from the vine so that then they get chucked into the fire at the end judgment or something like that. But Jeff's words help us with that when he gets into the Greek. Yeah, and just a thought for someone listening that doesn't know, the New Testament was written in Greek, but we can generally trust the English translation. And most passages, whether you're reading the NIV or the NET or the uh, NASB or the KGV or, you know, all these different English translations, uh, they generally for most verses say the same thing. There's only a few cases where, uh, while often understanding the Greek will bring much uh, uh, added meaning or depth or richness to the sure. passage. Uh, it's it's very rare where I would say this needs to change in how it's translated into English. That's that's very rare in in the New Testament. All right, gentlemen. I think. Oh, go ahead. Just one go other ahead, quick Peter. piece on this too. I think uh, Jeff and and Tom, if we were to read and forward Bill. in that passage, it, and <laughs> Bill, if we were to read forward in that passage, we would see uh, what kind of fruit is being expected. It really basically just boils down to um, love is being birthed and begins to erupt in your life as you abide in the vine. Um, you begin to be a person who, from the inside out, is being inhabited supernaturally by God's love that begins to pour out to other people. It's why Good he point. says, this is my command at the end of it. In verse 17, love each other. So I, I would also want to suggest that I wouldn't go read this passage and say, oh my gosh, I've got to try a bunch harder tomorrow to bear a bunch of fruit. And if I don't, I'm going to get lopped off. And, and again, people can interpret things in this way. 
um, really what the invitation is, is turn, turn your face towards Jesus um, and invite him to just daily um, be, be where your life is found day in and day out and that his life would begin to sort of breathe into your life. And as that happens, weird things begin to take place over months and years as you do that daily process and discipline. You really do turn and begin to love other people in a kingdom sort of way, not an embracing weird American sort of way, but where you actually care for the well-being of everyone around you, everyone, and even your enemies, dare I say, you might care for their well-being, and you might even begin to pray for those who persecute and love those who hate and all of that. This is kingdom life. That's the only fruit that is we're being invited to, to bear, and it only comes from Jesus. We can't bear it ourselves. As I look at this passage, it's a shame that we don't have three hours to talk about this. And what I mean by that is not that we just go on and on and on, but I think so often we miss the bigger picture on these things. You know, Jesus says, and I like this, um, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Okay, big deal. The Pharisees did that. Jesus said, no, you've got to go even further than that, because the Bible says Jesus laid down his life for his enemies. You and I are not counted as friends in this verse until we have surrendered to Jesus. And then we truly are his deep friends, but it is him that makes the initiative. And I think too often, uh, I think this is where Christianity, we get into what I call little huddles of Christianity and don't have a kingdom concept. Our concern for other Christians around the world should be as great as our concern for the people in our local church. And that's what it means here. We are now part of a much bigger kingdom, and we're there by the blood of Jesus. He's the one that's called us. And he laid down his life for his enemies. And let's be honest, Jeff and, and Peter, you and I started out as enemies of Jesus. And we were redeemed. How? I don't have a clue how he did it. I just know one day I woke up and I knew he was the one and only Savior. But that was his hand and his move. And I'm thankful mm-hmm. for that. And when that happens, Parrish, as you described, I'm just reading Second Corinthians 3 right now. Um, we were talking earlier in this program about what sin is, and it means falling short of God's glory, meaning we're not actually reflecting the glory for which we are made. But as we turn our lives over to Jesus and in his salvation or his power or his rescuing us from the power of sin begins to invade our lives. Second Corinthians three has this beautiful passage in verse 18. It says, and now we with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory. Like mm-hmm. we, we are no longer falling short of that we begin to Mm -hmm. shine with the glory of the kingdom for which we're meant. And it says, and we are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory coming from the Lord who is spirit being transformed from glory to glory. And and so I think sometimes we end up in this sort of interesting, I would say maybe even weird and, and unbiblical version of a Christian life where God does the saving and then we've got to go out and, and like with duty prove that we're grateful for our salvation and we've got to get up and do our quiet time or we've got to do better and this, that and the other. And it, it just simply isn't the invitation of Scripture. We are to stay tethered to Jesus for a lifetime and his salvation begins yeah. to operate in our lives um, to the point that we – I'm sure we've all met people, right? And I'm sure anybody who listening, who's listening has met someone who has walked a long life journey with Jesus, and you, you get in the room with them. They do shine. There, there they is a, a supernatural light that, that you can almost sense about them, and we're meant to become authentically Christ-like, not in our duty and our behavior, but from the inside out from which our duty and our behavior flows. And the only way you do that is keep turning back and surrendering to Jesus. And so I think we sort of have to get over this, I've got to go do my duty for Christianity thing, and and actually have a living, interactive relationship with Jesus where he breathes his love into us from the inside out. We become entirely different people all for a lifetime, not just from one saving event, and then we just sort of take the rest from there. 
You know, there's a lot of ancillary or uh, other passages that are describing this ongoing thing of abiding because it really is this, you, you described it, Peter, this connected to Jesus. And you think about all the places in Scripture where it says, you know, like, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul. We talked about it earlier. Seek first his kingdom. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Clothe yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ. Live by the Spirit. Draw near to God. What are all these passages saying? They're saying abide in Christ. And as you abide in Christ, and the more you do that, this fruit, and I think in view here, is the fruit of the Spirit, this love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, that will increase in your life so that you will go out and represent the kingdom and and preach the gospel and love others as yourself and all these other exhortations in Scripture. So as we abide and the more we abide, then the more love and joy and peace and patience we'll see in our own lives. I like it. Matter of fact, I've always tried to teach people that once we come to know Jesus— the reason we forgive our enemies, the reason we do these other things is not to make sure we get into heaven someday, but we do it because we're thankful for all that Jesus has done for us. And when the focus is on Jesus and what he's done, how can I do less? My goal is to become like Jesus in this life as much as I possibly can. And that means I will forgive my enemies, even though my humanist doesn't like it one bit. But yeah, if I want to be, be like Jesus, that's how I get there. Can yeah, we spend three so, more hours on this passage, by no, the way? We is that, can no, we? Can't. No, no, no. no. Yeah, do we have to, if we, maybe just one last comment, if you don't mind. I just, in light of what you're all saying, um, that phrase that we're all invited to, like, why do we do it? Um, we're meant to bear witness to okay. the now and coming kingdom. We, our lives are meant to bear witness to the now and coming kingdom. We turn and we are ambassadors of the now and, and coming kingdom. And so, uh, to to be a witness, and now we're back into the Greek, uh, what that word means when we see it in the English in places like Acts 1-8, to, you will be my witnesses, says Jesus. It means that your life testifies to the worth and to the effect of following Jesus, meaning that you are you're, you have become a disciple. You are spending your days um, with Jesus and, and learning how to grow in his presence. And so your life, just when people are with you, your life just shows the worth and effect of following Jesus. Jesus. And, and, and I think um, that's what we're invited to do in this world. It's, it's why discipleship is so critical. And it's why it's so unfortunate when some public leaders are testifying to a very different kind of life as they claim to follow Jesus and why it's so, you know, why it's so hard. But I just think helping equip people and teach people what it means to grow in, in a mysterious but real inside out life where we begin to shine with this glory that Second Corinthians 3 talks about. Wow, we'd be bearing witness to something that I think a lot of people would feel compelled by. All right, this next question, I only need one of you to answer. So I'm going to have uh, the winner of the heads and tails game here uh, answer it. So Tom Parrish, you call heads or tails? Heads. And it's heads, so you answer. All right, so here's the question. Is sin and iniquity the same? Sin and iniquity. Pretty hard to separate them. I mean, there, there, there are probably nuances there, but no, you're basically talking about the same thing because both are rebellion against the Lord and his commands, and it is trying to make yourself God. So iniquity is kind of what we do. Sin is kind of who we are. And so, yeah, I would put them together, and I wouldn't separate them too far at all. All right. If you're a new listener, welcome to Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. We want to officially welcome you with a free welcome pack gift here at Faith Radio. Uh, you can request yours today at myfaithradio.com. Check it out. We're going to take a break and come back with more of your questions. we got great questions still coming in. Text them over, please, to 877-933-2484. Be right back. 
Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. You guys are talking, which is fine because that's what we're you having do such a good time. I we apologize. talk on guy talk. So, um, thank you for joining us today, uh, Jeff Verdorn, Tom Parrish, Peter Kastner are my guests. The Power Panel. Um, all right, so lots of questions come in. Some long, challenging questions. Uh, Peter, do you have the text line up by any chance? I don't. <laughs> Thanks. You're, you're super helpful once again. <laughs> I, yeah, I've been less than helpful this entire hour. I'm just going to admit it. Uh, <laughs> all right. Um, I'll read this question, and we can either comment or say, let's comment on it another time. Because I think it'll take time, you're and it's, it's, uh, it's an emotional one, and we can say, let's reserve more time at another guy talk. Um, anyway, it starts off as, so long as you're bringing this up, I'm most likely leaving my loving church because the pastor is bent on women could be pastors, elders, etc. I've been digging deep for months, and I think he's misusing the Greek as men being the same as women. I know there is difference in adjective versus noun sentence structure, but you guys would know better than me. Although I've learned a ton trying to research, I don't want to stay if culture is if culture is coming to church. Yet don't want to leave if I'm in error, and it's truly a secondary issue. Smart, smart, well thought out question. Mm, very. Yeah. Uh, um, maybe I'll start here real quick. My own church believes that um, only men should be pastors and elders. I think when you look at the criteria f- for elders, for example, in First Timothy and in Titus, it lists off a, uh, a series of con- a criteria for determining what is an elder or a shepherd or an overseer, or I would argue a pastor of a church. And it appears that it's it's a male and that's, that's reserved for a male. And, uh, you know, man is the head of the woman. There's lots of passages that in our kind of modern feminist society, uh, a lot of people say, well, the Christianity is just old-fashioned. But I don't think it's old-fashioned. I think it's God's design. Uh, There is a concept that men and women are equal in Christ but have different roles. And I think this is so kind of common sense, to be honest. If you think about a family environment, the the male is good at some things, and oftentimes the woman is good at other things. And together, they make a great pair. And I think it's the same thing in the church. So I think this is a role that God has in Scripture uh, reserved for men to be pastors and elders. Uh, but there's a lot of churches today, especially, and more and more every day that are saying, no, we think women can also be be pastors as well. So um, I'm really glad that one of the things this guy is doing is doing his own research of the subject, and mm-hmm. I think that's awesome. I think yeah, so I too. Think, Go ahead, Peter. Uh, I was just going to say, and I mean, it's such a hard subject, right? And and I think in presenting the alternative view that I would abs- actually hold, which is that women can be pastors, I, I would want to preface that comment by making it really clear that I am uh, entirely disinterested in what's going on in the United States of America as being instructive for how to live life in God's kingdom. And so 
what I mean by that is that I think a lot of people, and, and I even uh, was part of a conversation with uh, the the leadership of a significant denomination in which they made the claim that if you allow women in ministry, then you will also begin um, to ordain and, and allow people in the LGBTQ community being ministry too. There's like a one-to-one relationship between them. And I kind of said, well, let's let's hold on for just a second. I mean, sometimes there can be a connection between those two. Um, but let's just let's just extract ourselves from the United States of America. Let's be completely disinterested in how some of those civil rights conversations are going, even though those are important conversations. And let's look to the biblical text and see what we see. And so I would be somebody who would hold to the view that um, LGBTQ expressions of sexuality and gender are inconsistent with God's kingdom, meaning that I don't believe yes. they're biblical. I don't think they should be affirmed. I understand. I have a ton of compassion. If I'm a young person today, I'm very likely to be answering or asking a ton of questions because just simply the waters in which I swim and eat and breathe and live with my friends and media and education, I mean, the, the pressures are so profound so I have in saying that I don't believe that those expressions are consistent with God's view of sexuality. I also say it alongside of compassion and love and gratefulness and on the journey with many people in that community. And, and, um, and, and I think there is considerable hope. So I'm going to rule out based on scripture, because I don't care about what's going on in America, that LGBTQ uh, communities are inconsistent. On the flip side, uh, as Jeff has pointed out, I think you can look at the scriptures and come to an, an interpretation that is faithful and reliable to the biblical text that says only men should be in ministry. There is evidence that indicates that should be the case. I would actually hold the alternate view that the better way of understanding or the better evidence for the scripture as you start working through some of these classic passages would um, would indicate that there is something unique and specific going on within the church community that somebody like Paul was addressing uh, primarily or or some other passages too in which these were temporary prohibitions related to the women of that community and that Paul was not making statements about masculinity and femininity itself. Now, is my interpretation right? Well, I, you know, I'm more than willing to be wrong in all of that. And this is why it's such a tricky issue is because there's really good evidence for both sides of it. Uh, I happen to be on the side trying to stay biblical, not American, but biblical, that I think women can be in ministry based on the scriptures, while I also, as I just indicated, simultaneously have a ton of compassion and grace and friendships within the LGBTQ community, but I would never affirm what's going on sexually there. So I hope some of that makes sense, and, and this is a really, you know, it's an interesting conversation for sure. I suppose I should say something here. Uh, <laughs> It's interesting. I am uh, licensed now. I, I'm ordained, but I was licensed in the AFLC, which no women in ministry is allowed. But I serve an LCMC congregation, which has women pastors, which is an interesting, I mean, the, the denomination does, which is an interesting, put it together. After nearly 50 years of ministry, here's the conclusion I came to. The scriptures aren't as clear as I'd like them. It never prohibits and says a woman cannot be a pastor. It talks about women not teaching in that, but whether that's the whole context, whatever, I don't know. But here's what I do know. In all my years of doing this, uh, when I would like to see more people simply preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether they're male or female, that's not happening. Most of the men pastors I have to work with or I have mentored, I'm very disappointed in because they're more cultural pastors than they are biblical pastors. And so they're, they're very much in helping the poor and the needy, and that's all good. I do that too. But Jesus isn't very central. Interesting, when I taught at uh, Bethany School of Missions, I taught preaching, and I had both men and, and women. And I had a 19-year-old woman who was a Baptist, and in her church, 
women could preach. And so the pastor, after she went through my training, asked her to preach one Sunday. And she did. And she came back so excited. And the pastor got a hold of me. He said, in all my years of <laughs> preaching and teaching, this is the most anointing woman I've seen because more people came to Jesus on that Sunday when she gave the altar call than they have in the entire time I've been there. I don't know. I know the Lord uses women in the Old Testament and in the New for his own purposes. Maybe he wants to raise up somebody. I'm not going to try to make it a general de facto thing and say, doesn't matter who you are, just go ahead and be a pastor. You better be called, and you better have the Lord's call on, on your heart and life, and you better be willing to die for that. If I can just make one comment, and my comment was specifically related to the role in the church of pastors and elders. So, you know, some of the the ideas like what you were talking yeah. about, Tom, about pr- being in ministry or preaching the gospel or leading a Bible study class of, you know, neighbors or, you know, any of these other variety of ministries, and, and, and Peter, you too, you talked about being in ministry. I'm, I think specifically I'm referring to the office, if you will, or the position of a shepherd ahead of a, of a church. So the pastor and elder role that, that I do believe is reserved for males. So, but, but that doesn't mean women cannot serve in, in ministry. So just wanted to make that clear. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I know we're just about out of time, and I would just add to that that I it would be a fun conversation for another time, but I, I would advocate for men and women side by side and even lead roles of ministry, lead pastors, all of those things. But, boy, I know we're out of time, so we're going to have to leave it there. It would be a fun conversation for yeah, sure. Yeah, it is. Uh, we will continue this at another time. Gentlemen, uh, thank you for being here and the fine contributions you make. I I, I mean that sincerely. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Julie, thanks for being here. Just Thank you. For, she's not going to talk. Great to have <laughs> Jeff's wife, Julie, here. And uh, just Maybe we some... should have had her kind of break the tie on that yeah, last maybe question. So. You know? Maybe, maybe she... so. I think so. <laughs> anyway, when I come back, I'm going to talk to Dr. Bob Muller. What causes a man to abandon his children? That's next. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.